Like any fashion-obsessed kid, when I was younger, all I wanted was to learn more. How do I know what goes with what? How many suits am I supposed to own? What shirts do I wear? Where do I start? There were a few books out there, but none of them influenced me as much as the one written by my next guest. I learned about proportion, color, and how to look like myself, not someone else. It was half psychology, half instructional, but all incredible. The book was Dressing the Man. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Buemo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is the one and only Mr. Alan Flusser. Alan and I discuss how he taught the world about classic menswear through teaching himself, why proportion is the most important thing in how to dress, and his 40-plus year friendship with Ralph Lauren. You rolled with some heavy hitters. Uh, well, yeah, I've had, you know... <laughs> My daughter, my younger daughter, I have two daughters, but my older daughter is a save the world teacher, Mm -hmm. went to Princeton, went to Bank Street. She teaches in the public schools in the Bronx, right? Mm -hmm. My younger one is got the fashion gene from my wife and myself. And her biggest deal is when she saw a picture of myself. Now, she's been with me lots of, you know, uh, industry things and lots of stuff that I've done. But her, the most impressed she was when she saw a little, little uh, picture of Andy Warhol and myself standing together. You knew Andy? I said, well, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, a little. I said, can I have that picture? I said, of course, honey, you can have the picture. Yeah. This is her greatest, you know, thrill. Um, You know, I mean, I've, yeah, been around in the Studio 54 time and and then much after it and uh, before it. So, um I had a lot of chance to, you know, rub elbows with people on their way up. You know? Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, this is this is quite the introduction, but I would say, you know, f- for you, I mean, you're you're becoming that person for other people. Um, well, that's generous of you. Well, no, I, I and I, you know, I say that, which is one of the, you know, one of the reasons, many reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is, is, you know, you are this this legend of menswear, but also. I mean, I've met you a handful of times, and uh, you're extremely warm and approachable. I mean, obviously, you've agreed to do this, but uh, I think when people, you know, just how you were saying earlier, when you were you were earlier discussing how you had met Mel Brooks, there's there's an idea in your head of who you think this person is, and then when you get to meet that person, you're like. Oh, this this is a regular guy. You know, right. they're they their blood bleeds red. They're, they're right. a normal person. That's and true. and I think sometimes uh from people that I've met, you find out that they're not who you want, and other times they are. And I think you've been one of those people that the more that I've gotten to know you, the uh you know, and, and who you are and what you represent, the more I've really, you know, fallen in love with the the brand of Alan Fusser, how you um, you know, how you've educated me as uh, not just, you know, a, a consumer of fashion, but a fan and, and someone who wants to obviously one day be at your level. So it's, it's a huge honor no, and a joy to talk to you. Very, very nice of you to say. Well, of course, I mean, of course. Uh, so, but I, to kind of go back to the beginning here. Now, I know we don't, we don't have a ton of time, but I, <laughs> I do want to go, you know, so where are you originally from? New Jersey. So you're oh, so you're from you're from the tri-state area. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the big deal for anybody growing up in New Jersey was to get into Manhattan. Yeah, you know, to go to New York City. That was 
the big deal. But I, my father was a real estate broker okay. who was considered a bit of a dandy. He was always dressed. He had very good, he really had very good taste until I actually screwed it up myself becoming, <laughs> when I became a designer in the early years, uh, who loved Fred Astaire and thought Fred Astaire was the be-all. And my mother um, was uh, a housewife, but also she was head of the Red Cross in New Jersey. And uh, when she, her mother died, inherited three dress stores in, um, her mother was in the, in the uh, retail business, small uh, uh, specialty stores in uh, North Jersey. Now, I can't believe I can't even remember. So my mother also had a certain sense of style. Interesting. And uh, between the two of them, um, you know, if a Fred Astaire, let's say, movie came on, they would take my, uh, they'd seat my brother and me down and we'd all watch it together and things of that sort. And my father was also crazy about golf, complete golf nut. And so I grew up to be a championship golfer. I had a one handicap. I don't know if you know what that is. I do. One, one handicap at the age of 16. What? And I played uh, in a lot of... Uh, Mostly national, U.S. Open, U.S. Amateur type play things, and I went to college for about a year and a half on a golf scholarship until I decided I wasn't going to be the next Nick Klaus or Palmer that era. Um, and then, of course, I went into the menswear business. So that's quite the pivot. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well yes and no, because my I said, as I said, I guess kids do a lot to connect with their parents. In this case, my father's two great, you know, loves were other than his kids and his family, were golf and clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So a big day for my father and me would be, or not, um, he was a Brooks Brothers aficionado. Sure. Uh, and um, it would be like November, and it'd be freezing out, and my father liked convertibles, and he loved to have the top down. So we would be <laughs> driving on the Garden State Parkway on a Saturday morning, going into Brooks Brothers, and then all of the satellite you know, J Press and all of the, the stores around it with the top down. He'd have a hat on. People would look at us like we were completely, of course, insane. Didn't really care. <laughs> and so and so my father could actually go to like Brooks and Paul Stewart and Triplers and, and, and uh, this, all the stores around and not buy anything because he didn't find anything he actually liked. Oh, interesting. He was very, very particular. Peculiar in particular. And um, then we get back in the car. Or if, or if he were buying me something for school or something, right? Uh, we get back in the car and we'd stop on this place. A French there was a French patisserie on Forty Sixth Street, which is or Forty Seventh because it was in the direction going to New Jersey. We'd stop get an a uh, get a no get a uh, Napoleon, excuse me. Okay, and then we drive out to the golf club and then we would play nine holes of golf, and then we'd have lunch, and then I'd go back. And that was our one of our you know big days together. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, so I yeah grew up uh, both enamored of clothing and very aware. I'd see my father; he'd put on an outfit of my father's. I once described one of his going out outfits was a a black cashmere single breasted peak lapel jacket, gray flannel pants, mm -hmm. um, a white Brooks button down, which he wore every day of his life. A black um, club tie with a gold kind of uh, you know insignia on it, a tattersall vest which was black with uh, a bone and then kind of gold 
lines, mm-hmm. et cetera. White handkerchief, uh, gray Lyle, French Lyle socks, which he kept up with garters, and he had suspenders, of course, uh, and black alligator tassel over shoes. Wow. Just to give you an idea. So I was what would watch him get dressed, you know, in the mornings and think, well, that's, you know, that's how people do this. But of course, it wasn't that way at all. He no, was, no. He no. was absolutely in his own world. So uh, I became, I grew up, you know, kind of surrounded by uh, that kind of aesthetic. And um, I started to date this girl whose father was a kind of self-made millionaire, and a, but a big guy, and he had to have his clothes made for him. Mm-hmm. And also in the real estate business. And one day he said, you know, Alan, you're like, so interested in the linings of clothes. <laughs> this was 16 or 17 years old. Why don't you come with a tailor with me and help me pick out stuff? It's probably going to be better than me. So we did. Interesting. And he liked the, the, he liked the, uh, the, the result. And so he said, you know, and he had two daughters. He was a very entrepreneurial guy. He said, I've got a business for you. He said, I said, what? He said, well, I'll introduce you to three of my friends who all go to a tailor. You can take him to this tailor. You can charge the tailor, you know, for taking new clients, and then you can charge the clients. I said, really? I said, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> if you think they'd, you know, go just because you're re- recommending me. Anyway, so that kind of started my I, putting my foot in the sartorial sand as such. And um, so instead of charging the tailor, I just decided I would just accumulate, you know, money and then have him make me things. So from the oh, age, okay. from the like so, credit, yeah, like a credit. And so from the age of sixteen or seventeen, I've had my clothes custom made for me since I've been. And of course, when you spend that kind of money, especially as a young person, or yeah. you really want to make sure that you're going to be able to wear these clothes for some time. It's not like, you know, I mean, of course, it's a very interesting uh, educational. Uh, kind of <laughs> uh, a discipline because yeah. you know and in those days in the 60s or uh, yeah in the early, late 60s clothes were you know changing a lot so it wasn't like today where you don't have a tremendous uh, choice of silhouettes so to speak being worn in those days you had Brooks Brothers and you had Cardan just you know evolving and mm-hmm. all other kinds of different stuff going on so there were lots of choices to choose from in terms of you know, how you might ask somebody to make you a suit and stuff. But anyway, uh, it started my interest in clothes. And um, so I had this, you know, wardrobe of custom-made clothes starting at the age of 17. and That's incredible. Yeah, and, and that was really my, more than anything, that was my start, kind of my foundation. When I went to look for a job in the menswear industry, I just brought three or four pieces from my wardrobe with me and said, well, this is the kind of things that I have done. Whose are they? Well, I wear them. I said, well, you know, give them the story or whatever. <laughs> well, so you know, I kind of am a yeah. stylist. I'm a designer. Right. That's incredible. So, yeah, that's, that's a, a quick synopsis of how I, you know. Well, my, you know, I would say for a lot of people, their first idea of who you were was based off of a book, Dressing sure. the Man, which, oh. um, you know, I mean, the, first, you, you've done a couple books, but for me, my, my first experience with you uh, was dressing the man. And I, I say that because, so first off, a very quick explanation, as I'm sure a lot of people know, dressing the man was a very, um, you know, astute observation of different times uh, and eras of menswear, but also 
a literal guidebook of what to wear and what you needed and building your wardrobe. And I mean, obviously you could explain it much better, but to, to kind of push this, this along, I had this book and I was just starting to get into custom. And I would say for a lot of people, they were like this too, because as you know, you had just discussed, custom is quite an investment. And I would say, if you're like me, <laughs> and one of the mistakes I made when I started to get into custom is you have every option in front of you. So you maybe choose something that's not the most intelligent. Right. It's like, oh, you know, one of my first custom jacket was this like purpley cross hatch thing. It's awful. It's gone. <laughs> when I should have done a navy. I should have done a navy jacket. But you need, you know, you need that experience. If you want yeah. to learn how to dress, if you want to learn how to, you know, to put together a style of your own, you need to have those failures or those mistakes, which yeah. is the reason that anybody who has a stylist for them is never going to learn how to dress well. Yeah. Because it takes away all of that guessing game and kind of thinking about, well, does this look good or, you know, or I'm buying this and then you find out, she's, I didn't never wear this thing. I wonder why not. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, so how, how did your book start? And I know you've, you've said some of this stuff in the past, but if you could just refresh my memory. Well, that book is the fourth book that I wrote. Oh, and, geez. Yeah. The first book was, uh, People used to ask me, because in those days I was working for Pierre Cardin. That's the first big job I got. And so I was traveling all around the world. And I, I was designing a sportswear collection. And it was made in seven different places around the world. From, from Brazil, from, uh, yeah, Brazil and Colombia and South America, to France and Italy and Europe, to Hong Kong and India and the Far East, etc. So I was traveling, and people would say, I'm going to Paris. Uh, what store should I go to? My brother, who was a writer and who was a nationally ranked tennis player, we were both incredibly athletic and very competitive. Quite the family, Mr. Yeah, Fletcher. Very competitive. <laughs> um, fortunately, we just, yeah, the, the sports kept us aside. Um, he said, Why don't you write a book on shopping? I said, Well, I'm not writing. I mean, first of all, I'm not a, you know. He said, Well, I'll write it. You give me the information. I said, Okay. So we put this book together. And at the last moment, I decided eh, maybe I should just give a few tips on like some simple things like how to tie a tie or how to wear a handkerchief or yeah. I, so I just included in the back of the book like I don't know fifteen or twenty points about dressing. And when I went to do the book tour, right, mostly that's what people asked me about like those fifteen or twenty things. And I thought, wow, oh, maybe I should do a book on like dressing. So I wrote. I then um, wrote this book called Closing the Man, and that's yeah. how most people, first hardcover book that I wrote, and that had a lot of, that was the first time you, you got to see the Esquire and the apparel arts illustrations. Right. Yeah, Dressing the Man, um, I took a year to um, create a, um, the, a glossary, that I, that, because I didn't want to, there's so many terms Right. You know, in menswear. And I didn't really want to just inundate the text with, you know, all of these terms. So I decided I would create not just for the reader, but also for all the schools and stuff like that who, you know, carried my book and try to weed out those terms that are no longer relevant that were in the this famous Esquire, you know, um, book and then update, you know, the terms that are being used in, in, the, in menswear. And that took a year. And that's, uh, and then, you know, the aspiration of the book, actually the aspiration of my book was 
I'm going to write this book, and I'm hoping that the book that somebody asks, whatever question somebody asks me, they're in the book. The answer is in the book. Right. Um, that's my aspiration for this book, or one of them. And, you know, been pretty good so far. I, there's a few. I, of course, it has a few of my prejudices, as like, I hate Windsor Knot ties. So, <laughs> in Clothes and the Man, I showed how to, how to uh, tie it, how to knot it. Right. This one, I didn't even show how to knot it. <laughs> I just mentioned it or whatever. I have to, I have to do my, my bit. Of course, then they became incredibly popular, right? Windsor Knots. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm shaking uh, on my wall. You, there's a little uh, photograph of, of Doug Fairbanks Jr., myself. And, of course, Jeez. He, was, <laughs> he was, you know, the, he was the proponent of Windsor Knot, of these oversized Windsor Knot. Of course, it should never have been called Windsor Knots. I have no idea why someone decided to call him, because the Duke of Windsor never in a hundred years ever made a knot like that, nor would he ever wear anything like that. But somehow <laughs> it, it came to be known. And he was a, just a, a big friend of the Duke of Windsor's. And also, this, you know, he's the only kind of guy in that Hollywood set that walked around with these you know, bulbous tie knots on, which yeah. he thought were absolutely you know, de rigueur. Well, something that you know, we, we glossed over a little bit about you, know, y- you making these books and this research is a lot of this stuff, it sounds like it was self-taught. Like, wh- who, um, did you have someone that teach you? I mean, because you didn't... Well, that's a, an excellent question. I mean, um, you know, uh, I'm writing this book on Ralph, and when I proposed the book to Ralph, I said, look, he said... Oh, Ralph Lauren. Be, Ralph Lauren. Yeah. Uh, he said, oh, that'll be great. I said, of course, you think it'll be great. What are you going to do? <laughs> You're just going to be there, and I'm going to do all the work. What's well, the big deal. I said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to write a chapter, a sample chapter, and if you like it, and you like the writing, and you like whatever, then I'll do it. He said, okay. So I decided to write the sample chapter about how Ralph learned uh, about the kind of taste that he has. How did he develop that taste or style, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't anything that I had to interview a lot of people about. I kind of knew that. And, you know, he had, as did I, although he was before me, there were in those days these uh, teachers or these educators or these people you could go and talk to about the minutia of style. So, you know, there was, um, uh, well, there was Roland Melodondry, who was this famous kind of haberdasher who had a store. Brooks Brothers was still in its heyday. Paul Stewart, uh, Cliff Grodd was a Paul Stewart. You had a lot of custom tailors that are around that you could chat with, et cetera. Yeah. But my, um, what I, so I was very similar. So actually, my mother-in-law, I, she liked how I wrote. I sent her the, the chapter, and she calls me up and says, so is this about you, <laughs> you know, or is it about Ralph? I said, well, that's a very insightful question. <laughs> but I had, um, in the, when I started to work for Cardin, which was in 1970, Pierre Cardin, Pierre Cardin in yep. 1973, I started to travel all around the world. And so I had have, from... New Jersey, the next tailor I had was a guy in Rome who used to make me clothes. And I one day was reading that uh, Fred Astaire had his clothes made at this tailor, Anderson and Shepard, and that, uh, I don't know, something about George Cleverly. And I wanted to have a pair of velvet um, monogram shoes made. So when I was in London, I went to the store at the time and had a pair. And I, when I, I remember looking down wearing one of my gabardine handmade, you know, Rome's custom-made suits and thinking, these two things don't go together at all. Interesting. So I 
then kind of sketched out like the kind of jacket I wanted. And I went into Anderson Shepherd. In those days, you kind of needed someone who introduced you. You just didn't just walk in off yeah. the street. But long story short, I took a quick look around and realized, wow, they make at least the lapel shapes and all the rest of it, very similar to what I want. And of course, they made... Anyway, I had them make my clothes. I started having them make my clothes in 1973. And then I went to these English shirt makers mm-hmm. and then these English shoemakers. Uh, shoemakers. Uh, I had jewelry made on Bond Street. Jeez. I had um, um, ties made at various places. And again, it was a time where you ended up, you know, kind of being introduced or to someone who'd been there for 40 or 50 years. So my education was, you know, having all these things made for myself. Yeah. Learning how they, they're supposed to be made. Uh, what the shapes kind of represent, and how you wear a you know a a real a pin collar or an eyelet type collar, and what kind of jewelry you need to do that, and right. what the size of it has to be in order to fit you know et cetera et cetera. Et cetera. And um, so, in having my clothes you know custom made now at the top level, right? Whether it's Charvet in Paris or whomever I was going to, you know that was really kind of my education, and you know telling me what I want, but getting feedback from them in terms of, well, what about this or what about that? And so I really got taught by, I would say, I mean, I didn't have clothes made at Huntsman, but I would go in there and I'd take I mean, a look around and I'd, yeah. you know, chat with them, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I ended up, in those days, of course, Cardan was the, you know, leader for fitted, you know, square-shouldered, you know, uh, slightly flared, you know, the Cardan suit was yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A big, it was gigantic. And I hated that. I, I didn't like anything about Cardan. I could design the clothes because I understood what it was everybody wanted, but I never wore them. So here I am <laughs> going to the f- shows in my, you know, Anderson and Shepard, Alan Flusser, you know, clothing and right. velvet shoes. I look like anybody from this, you know, earth, especially in the Cardan world. And, but I, you know, didn't really care. Um, so that's kind of how I got the, I would say the, the really literal, uh, education in terms of, uh, you know, what the clothes are supposed to be about and all, all of this stuff. And of course I'm interested in and of myself. And I think like Ralph, Lauren, um, we both wanted to be the best dressed men in the world. And, um, but we had our own idea about what we thought best dressed was. Right. And, um. You know, as an American, I had a brought to the table a much more eclectic and broader sense of what I thought style was about. It wasn't just looking like you rolled out of, you know, a Savile Row tailor and walking down Bond Street with your brolly and stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, I was still a fashion person and I liked putting different, you know, elements together. Take, you know, a, a, a suit and wearing it with jeans and a cowboy shirt or whatever it happens to be. But um, it always appealed. I mean, uh, I hate the idea of somebody spending money on something and finding out that they're either not happy with it or it's not good for them over a period of time. Mm. And so they don't end up wearing it. Mm. So, um, and I think Ralph is very much the same in the sense that he's very interested in things that have a permanence or timelessness. Right. And so how do you develop, you know, an eye 
for things that transcend the moment. Well, something that that I also noticed that you were talking about, you know, so you you learned your craft and, you know, obviously what you've taught so many people through observation, through traveling, through visiting all these places, having a real firsthand experience. I, I did go to FIT and I took a textile course and I went to Parsons and took an illustration course. Okay. Just to, you know, yeah. supplement this. But the the biggest thing of, of all this too is there are types of people, I would say, especially in menswear, that you kind of learn your own style and your own rules and then that's you. Like you don't want to tell people that. You don't want to like let the secret out. But yeah. with you, I mean, you are you've become, you know, really an evangelist for for how to dress and how to do that. And that's very unlike Unfortunately, how a lot of people who dress are, it's like, oh, this is this is my way. Oh, right. you know. Well, it, it's true, actually. The um, the first and third books of, of shopping mm-hmm. are, you know, all of my own places that I haunt. Because um, it's not just a shopping book. I actually tell people what in the store they should buy. <laughs> you know, it's not like just right. go there. No, I actually. So, um, no, I always felt like if I have this knowledge, what's the point of just, you know, keeping it for myself? That's kind of selfish. Um, you know, I should share, share this. Of course, I'm also a Buddhist. I also practice a form of Buddhism, and I started practicing in 1974. So Mm. that's over 40 years at this point. And, you know, as a Buddhist, you have a little bit larger point of view than just, you know, the 12 inches in front of your body in terms of how you're going to look and stuff like that. So I... But I'm a very uh, kind of, I like to teach, or I like to share information. I like to inform people about things. Uh, I think there's a cer- I get a certain amount of um, enjoyment out of that. So most of my books are tutorial, you know, in, 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 as a basis. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think if, you know, I, I think I have, you know, kind of, okay, I have this little corner of the world that I'm probably as knowledgeable as anybody else about. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, whereas I, in the 70s, people weren't quite as interested in the subject as they are, as they came to be in the 80s. And then, of course, Wall Street came out and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, also I've uh, spent, I've probably, um, as a designer, uh, one doing personal appearances for my collection when I first started in all the stores around Bergdorf's and all the, the best stores, and then um, starting my own custom shop. So I have probably sold uh, more clothes as a design person to men than any other person that I actually know. Interesting. Know and so part of my um, knowledge uh, and part of my priority in terms of approaching the subject of dressing is really based on what I've learned just listening to men, you know, talk about what it is on their mind. And uh, I really have never met any guy who, if you take away the things that most guys are fearful of, which is like looking ridiculous, (laughs) frankly, or looking, you know, putting on something that's embarrassing. Um, If you take that away, there's very few men who don't want to learn, like, okay, well, what do I look good in? And just tell me what I look good in. And of course, I insist that they find out why they look good in it, not just like what. That's Interesting. that's that's only part of the equation. Um, and there is a you know there is a very definite um, explanation as to why 
somebody looks better in one thing than they do in another thing, um, et cetera. So people need to know that. And, you know, the problem is it's dressing is ugh, kind of like a buying wine or buying art. There's a skill involved. and There is a, a skill. You know, there's a skill, and yeah. or, or you're just learning. There's a skill in yeah. parenting. Yeah. <laughs> and the more you know about, like, what a one-year-old is supposed to be doing at one year old, yeah. you know, you have a little bit broader perspective on, okay, you know, how to approach, you know, whatever, t- teaching them to do stuff. And, uh, you know, dressing is the same way. There's no substitute. There's no, everybody wants the shortcut. The shortcut is to be able to find somebody who can give you that kind of information that's, um, that's specific for you. The problem oh. with the culture is is that the culture is a mass uh, mass communication culture, which is very good about communicating information for a lot of people, but not very good about communicating information for an individual person, which is what dressing is all about because it's, it's it's a series of individual choices of you know what fits you the best, what with shoulder is the most flattering for your head and for your shoulders and et cetera et cetera so that kind of information, which used to be somewhat available because you had people trained uh, before they ever went on a sales floor. Right. You could ask people some kind of fundamental questions like that before you even got to, you know, buy clothes. You, you, you don't have that today. So today it's completely, almost completely self-education, so to speak, in terms of learning how to dress. And, of course, that's it, it, coupled with uh, the fact that there are not a lot of um, people in the public um, uh, view who are good examples of what it is to dress well. Mm. And I don't mean dress like Alan Flusser. I mean just who have their own style. I right. mean, everybody, of course, goes back to the, you know, the grand era of Hollywood when you could, in 10 seconds, any man could probably identify six or eight you know, of the leading men of the time, and they were incredibly well-dressed, you know, from character. And they dressed Grant. themselves. And they dressed themselves. Yeah. Uh, and But you had these guys, you know, walking around or up on a big silver screen. Right. And most people learned to dress, you know, from watching other men do something that they may not do, but, oh, I saw him do that. I, I, I could try that, you know. Interesting. And if you don't have that, you have those two elements where you can't go into a store and get this kind of information and you don't have anybody in the public to be able to show you, you're kind of on your own. And which is one of the great things of, you know, of how this blogosphere has come, you know, into play such a big role yeah. as it has. Because, um, you know, you'd be very hard pressed to, to get that kind of fundamental information down. I put on a perfume every day, but I don't ever really think about what's in it. Is this stuff even good for my skin? Is this company good for the planet? Look, I go through deep thoughts when I'm getting dressed. Recently, I've fallen in love with this new company called Fleur. Fleur makes incredible, non-toxic, gender-free perfumes that are cruelty-free and sustainably sourced. Fleur is a completely transparent fragrance company, which means they tell you every ingredient in their perfumes and why it's in there. Their entire process is simple and easy to use. First, you get to know each of Fleur's scents with pictures, words, and even playlists on their site. It's actually a really cool experience. Pick three you want to try and they'll mail them to you and you can see how it works with your style and your body. Myself, I picked Hepcat, Sindara, and Moab, but I've really been feeling Hepcat. It's this nice smoky scent that's perfect for winter. 
By the way, this stuff is perfume, folks, not alcohol and Mountain Dew. You're going to smell like an adult, not an aerosol can. Right now, Fleur is offering a killer deal for Blamo listeners. Go to Fleur.com and use promo code Blamo to get 20% off your first custom sample set. Pick any three cents to try and get credit towards a full-size bottle of your favorite. That's promo code Blamo at Fleur.com to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. That's P-H-L-U-R.com. Yeah. But I'm, you know, always encouraging people that, that learning how to dress well is much less complicated than it's made out to be. That's good to know. Yeah. And, uh, but again, it's, it's just, you have to know which proportions and which, which proportions fit you and your physique because your physique, the width of your shoulders and the length of your arms and the length of your legs and your, um, you know, your, your, your the torso in relationship to your, um, below your waist and the size of your shoe and the you know, size of your head. These are all things that are not changing in, for the rest <laughs> of your life. Yeah. So proportion is the, prob- is the most important thing to learn. If you, if you can, uh, we try to teach, let's say in the custom shop, I try to teach somebody how to wear a dark suit, a white shirt, a dark tie, a white handkerchief, dark socks and shoes perfectly for them. Mm. That encompasses maybe 70% of everything you have to know about clothes because there are all proportions, right, that have to do with your specific proportion. So the good news is it's not like fashion, which comes and goes, changes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If you can start out trying to understand the relationship between yourself and the proportions of clothes that you're buying, and then what colors flatter your complexion and right. why, that's kind of it. And in terms of color... You know, uh, again, lots of, there's lots made of how much you have to know about color in order to dress well, but the fact of the matter is if, uh, you know, what is the outfit that someone would put on where no matter whether it's custom made or it's, or it's leased or rented, most men look their absolute best in a tuxedo. If a guy puts on a tuxedo, whether it's well-designed or not, most people say, oh, You've never looked, you know, more elegant or more yeah. handsome. Why right? is that? And how many colors in a tuxedo? Two. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Black and white. Yeah, no. Okay. So if all men look their absolute best in an outfit that has two colors in it, then the conversation about color for people is not necessarily as complicated as people think it is. Oh, my God. My, my, uh, my head's exploding right now as I'm processing <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I, I think, you know, this one of the great things of social media and stuff that's happened is there are all these little pockets of exposure that happen. You know, uh, when menswear, you know, the whole hashtag menswear came about, it was great because, you know, I got to understand more of um, not just people like you, but other people. And, and the, the playing field got a little bit level into which you could see these other people who might have their own unique sure. taste on things. And expertise on, on things. But I would say in some cases, it, for myself, it was occasionally a bit toxic because I would see lots of different bodies and body types and styles, and I thought, which I now know I can't, that I could emulate them. And I was like, oh, I can look like this guy, or I can look like this guy. Right. But the truth was, and, and obviously as I've learned through many expensive mistakes, um, I can't look like that person because, you know, I have very square shoulders. I, you know, I'm, you know, my, my height, my stature, what colors look good on me. And 
you know, it's interesting that you you kind of discuss the tuxedo too, because it's one of the few things that I've not done because I'm just like, well, maybe that's when I figure it out. But it sounds like from what you're saying, like that's one of the best places to start. Well, if you start with someone who's knowledgeable about it. Because, <laughs> right. Because a tuxedo is like the last vestige of educated taste in a sense. One of the reasons yeah. that it has survived is because so many designers over the years have tried to defang, you know, the the tuxedo, the wearing of one. Everybody looks like each other. Right. But the fact of the matter is that there's certain, you know, um, virtues of a properly cut tuxedo that will let you go, you know, a lot of different places for a lot of years. Mm. Um, and they're not going to be upstaged by, you know, whatever the newest idea is about a tuxedo. But it does, it is one of the things that's tied to the past because that was designed, you know, to, in the 30s, uh, through a uh, a kind of combination of very unusual elements being, you know, people like the Duke of Windsor and Fred Astaire and those people walking around and then all of these t- tailors mm. and they had to come up with something that could replace, you know, a, uh, a, uh, uh, white tie and tail. Right. That people could wear out that was more comfortable and stuff. So it, you know, always referred back or, you know, was the, the child, so to speak of that. And so, you know, it came into being, uh, in such a way that it has managed to survive, if you can, you know, all of the trials and tribulations of fashion of, over the years. Um, and it is true that if uh, someone, a man puts on a tuxedo that fits him properly, that's cut properly, uh, with the right dinner shirt and bow tie and stuff, um, you know, it's supposed to make men look like movie stars. And it's yeah. as close as a man will come to looking like a movie star. Right. So um, there are some virtues in, 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 you know, most of what we're talking about is we haven't even talked about style. We just talked about knowledge essentially. So it's mostly, you know, it's a, it's something you can learn. In other words, it's not, it's not, you know, yes, I think I said somewhere in dressing the man, I'm not, this is not a book for someone who I'm not trying to train people to dress like Fred Astaire. He brought something to the table that's over and above, you know, what the average person is going to, be able to do as as a lot of the other people in that book but at least to understand the fundamentals of you know how he dressed or why he dressed that way or etc and apply it to yourself but it is a learning process i mean the point is you it's not you know it is something that you have to decide is important and of course i mean listen uh, other than your your face and your hands the rest of you is covered by clothing so clothing uh, can play an incredibly important um, a form of communication. Because as you know, you may not know anything about a guy, but if a guy can speak well and he dresses well, mm. and he comes in, let's say, to an interview or whatever, I mean, uh, it's not going to get him the job, but it's certainly going to give him a leg up. Right, know? right. And um, of course, then you have to actually do it. So, And then, of course, clothes become so expensive. So you know, yeah. the combination of that, probably is a really good idea for people to take some time and try to learn about them. Yeah. So it's really up to the individual, you know, to take responsibility for their own sartorial destiny. I'm yeah. afraid. If, if, it's int- if you're interested in 
developing a personal style that you can build on and, you know, have fun with over a period of time. Yeah. Well, one of the things you mentioned earlier when we were talking is is that you've been writing this book about Ralph Lauren. Mm. H- how did you and Ralph become friends? Um, <laughs> in the 70s, um, <laughs> I got a call from Peter Strom mm-hmm. that Ralph wanted to see me. And um, I think it was 74 or something. And they were interested. I had done some stuff for Cardan, had gotten in the newspaper. They wanted to meet this guy who did it. And I told him that I, much like Ralph, actually, I, I told him I wasn't interested necessarily in working for someone, but I was in the next year or so, I was going to start my own business. Hmm. And Ralph, uh, to his incredible credit, said, Well, what about you and I being partners? I said, Partners? Really? I thought, you know, he, he had started in 67, so by 74, 75, he had made a pretty good you know impression but a uh, long story but they they didn't have enough money actually to, to the million dollars it was going to take to launch a new design person right they just didn't have that they had the money but they had issues with their women's wear they were trying to buy back so a series of conversations ensued and um and i never ended up uh, we never ended up getting together but uh from that point on i always um you know, I always kept in touch with Ralph. As a matter of fact, I tell the story in the book. Uh, like the first vacation I took after I started my business, I ended up at Round Hill in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Now, Ralph has not one but two houses there now. And the next morning, I get up, and who the hell do I bump into but Ralph? So we sit down and catch up and ask me how business is going. And before I got up, he said, you know, I just want to tell you something, Alan. I've heard some things that you allegedly said about my business Uh that are not like, you know, that he doesn't make great quality or blah, blah, blah. And he said, I don't know whether those things are true, but just let me give you some advice. Don't, you know, just keep your head going forward. Don't, you know, talk about other people. You don't have to. And of course, whether or not this is true or not, there are a lot of people who are going to be jealous of anybody who's had your, you know, initial success, your success. Anyway, it was a very humanistic advice. Hmm. And I felt like, you know, that Ralph and I were going to be, you know, that I was, that was a relationship I was going to have for a long time. Right. On some level. And over the years, we played with occasionally getting together to, I end up to be really the only American designer who's not worked for Ralph, other than Calvin Klein. (laughs) Most everybody who's, you know, been in business or is, you know, has you know gone through that training school, which is a pretty great training school. Um, and then when Addressing the Man came out, I would interview him on different subjects. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I had the relationship like, he showed me the first purple label suit, right, with the big shoulders and whatever. Yeah. And I told him, like, no, wait a minute, Ralph. This looks great on you. But here... You've been proposing natural shoulder, rounded shoulders, you know, kind of. And now you're going to propose to that same clientele that they wear airplane with shoulders? Mm. I said, I don't see that happening. And, you know, off we went. Right. Of course, they didn't sell at all. But um, So I have that relationship with him. And I think that, you know, he always respects the fact that, hey, I'm not working for him. I can tell him whatever. But when Dressing the Man came out, uh, he... Put it. Put the book in his stores. Yeah, which was 
you know, this is 2002. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if anyone has ever put "quote unquote" a competitor's work in their own stores, particularly. But um, the book sold so well that they actually decided to go into the book business. That was the first book they ever really carried. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, I have written about Ralph over the years, and I have tremendous respect. I mean, what he's been able to do is just. Well, you'll never see it again. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And again, here's a guy who built maybe the largest luxury fashion business in the world based on not no fashion. Right. Well, what do you mean no fashion? I mean, here's a guy who in 1968 or 69 when he started to get going, you know, told the fashion world or the people his contempor- his compatriots in the fashion business I'm not interested in fashion. I don't even want to design fashion. You know, fashion is something that's short-lived. I'm looking to, you know, design things that last. This is completely contrary, of course, to anything, especially back then. And, uh, you know, so that's a very similar attitude to myself. I completely agree with that idea about clothes. And I hate the idea of either designing clothes or watching people go in and buy clothes that I know in a year or two years, they're going to just look at themselves and say, how the hell did I buy that? Interesting. Yeah, I, I think there is a bit of a um, an evolution of the consumer in, I think, a lot of people's mindsets. And I don't say this to defend anyone. I actually say it, it's a bit of a bummer that um, you you get something and that becomes your identity for a short amount of time. It needs to be very gregarious and loud. Um, and then you cast that identity aside. Sure. And, you know, so there's not so much like what you were discussing, which I'm more in favor of, of building your identity and building who you are through the clothing uh, over time. And you're constantly adding more to, right. you know, who you are. Right. This is just kind of today I'm going to be this person. I'm going to look like that. And tomorrow I'm done. And, and it's quite an expensive waste. Um, to do, but I, I do wonder why people tend to gravitate towards that. And we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but it, it is it is perplexing. Down the rabbit hole of what? Well, pardon me, down the rabbit hole of trying to explore the psyche of why mankind wants to constantly look like someone else at different stages all the time. Um, well, it's only... It's only a certain segment of the population that wants to do that. I mean, if you look at the New York Times Magazine, let's say, sure, which should uh, address the the fashion needs or dressing questions of people who shop at Bergdorf's or Barney's, or in other words, somebody who can actually afford to spend four or five thousand dollars on mm-hmm. a suit of clothes. That's that's true. Uh, you don't see that. You don't see that that any. You don't see merchandise for that audience. You just see what the latest idea is, you know, that hasn't been seen or that pushes the envelope or tears the envelope or whatever it is. Right. And, I, and, and that's the lack of balance, you know, in terms of, you know, fashion reporting. That's one of the reasons I think and that's one of the issues with Ralph and, you know, why he hasn't necessarily gotten his due from the, you know, from the journalistic the the you know the fourth estate because he's not interested in running things down a runway that are going to have this kind of like 
vavum, you know, momentary, you know, uh, appeal. Right. Uh, he's interested in making things look interesting and adding to someone's wardrobe, but then that, but that you can wear, that you can actually wear. Yeah. So, um, as I told you that, you know, um, his, the idea therefore about dressing is, as you just said, taking a kind of personality and adding, you know, layers to that over a period of time to develop your own style. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is a, maybe not as, this is maybe more eccentric than typical, but, you know, I have, I'm wearing things from six or seven different sources, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing they have in common is that you'll be able to wear them for 25 years because they're classic. They're not boring, right? but they're, cl- but they're, yeah. And that's, you know. Well, let's, let's talk about that real quick because one of the last things I wanted to cover is, is how you have evolved in your own style. And, you know, I, uh, you wrote a piece on, on your site about how, um, you know, you've gone from say wearing suits, you know, big pinstripe suits to these, these track pants. And, you know, right <laughs> now you're wearing, uh, track pants with a Western shirt, which is beautiful. Uh, and a very lovely, I would imagine some type of cashmere, um, you know, window pane jacket. And it is very, your outfit is the most Alan Flusser, Alan Flusser outfit could ever be. But it's also one of the things that, you know, I get almost envious because if I tried that and I was walking down the street, some guy would be like, what is this guy doing? But <laughs> I, you doing this, I mean, I mean, even, even the footwear that you have, these like somewhat like They're driving. Hermes. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything about what you you have on is is so unique and and it's i think you know the the thing that's made me the most excited about not only learning about you but your books is like what i want is i see that and i just want to buy that whole look and wear it right but it's almost like you kind of can't you have to put in the time and figure out what works and what you enjoy and so like to you know a long-winded explanation of what i was doing mm-hmm. is like your style has really evolved quite a bit. And it has? Yeah. And it hasn't. In Interesting. A sense. Well, because I just showed you a picture of me taken in the 70s yeah. wearing a pair of pleated gray flannel pants, custom-made boots, sure, a Western shirt, and suspenders, right? Yeah. You did show me, yeah, you wearing that right. Western shirt or a Western in the shirt. 70s, yeah. So, um, again... At the highest, you know, kind of rung, I would say, of sartorial sophistication are a groups of men and women who kind of dress to their own beat, so to speak. Yeah. And their own beat is oddly overlaps, no matter whether it's in Tokyo or Paris or Vienna or whatever. And that is that this person has learned to identify kind of classic taste, but let yet with a little bit of style, mm-hmm. and then taken all of these things and put it together in their own way. And so um, it's true. I, I, I used to wear head-to-toe Savile Row clothing mm-hmm. uh, or my own clothing, et cetera. Um, and I still wear, you know, my own jackets or my own... But I, you know, I'm older, <laughs> and, and I, I, I've put on weight, and I want to be comfortable, and I've, you know, comfort has always been, like, 
the most important thing for me. If I'm not comfortable, I'm not in a good mood. <laughs> right. So um, the things I wear have to be comfortable. And when I wore ties and shirts exclusively, they were incredibly comfortable because of the way they were cut. But, um, you know, being able to put together different modes of, of apparel together mm. is really, there's a book you should look, you should buy it. It's called Cheap Chic. It's been reissued. It's from the 70s. Okay. It is a proponent of, of of finding the world's classic, you know, things to wear and then putting them together in your in your own way. And it was kind of like when the French guys came over, they were wearing blue jeans, um velvet jackets and 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 cowboy boots. Hmm. Like we fitted, very fitted. They look like right. amazing. So, you know, these are this is the kind of uh, the basis of I would say really, you know, real individual pure style as such. And, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you, you just identified a whole, you know, panoply of things. But again, the question is, do you understand that these things uh, are beyond fashion, the individual things? In mm. other words, do, can you, do you have the eye yet to identify this particular item, let's say you'd see in a shop and say, okay, I don't think I can buy that anywhere else. Or if I can, it's something I can really envision wearing in 20 years. And, right. You know, and that comes from a little bit of, you know, of, of, of just having the experience of having that kind of run through your mind or looking at photos of people, you know, dressed, you know, in X, Y, Z. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, everything that I have on today from the very inexpensive to the very expensive, um, uh, for the most part, you know, I bought, you know, at a store or I bought, I had this, of course, the jackets custom made. Um, but, um, you know, to be able to walk into Hermes, see those, these two eyelet tie, uh, like desert boots. Yeah, they're beautiful. Say, and then say, well, what's so special about that? There's, you know, these other desert boots and things like that, but these are eight or 10 years old at this point. Really? Yeah. But if you felt the, the, the suede, you'd say, oh my God, those are like... Yeah. <laughs> right. And then you'd have to understand that the toe, okay, so the toe might have been in those days, it might have been square or it might have been less round or whatever. But like, is that toe going to be out of fashion like X amount of time? And you'd have to just, you know, because those are the things that go through your mind in terms of making a decision. So it's just a question. It's like anything. You, If I gave you $10,000 to go to buy art when you were 21 years old and you've spend it all and then at age 35 i gave you another ten thousand, or let's say 15 whatever it is i would guess that very little of what you bought at 21 you'd be buying again at 35 because your tastes had evolved your taste you'd looked at a lot more art you'd right. seen a lot more art yeah you digested a lot more and therefore your taste level would have you know gone up and that's what you try that's and a, develop yeah it's a good explanation yeah well alan this has been a joy, a pleasure. We'll have to do this again. I mean, there's so much more stuff I want to get into that we didn't have time to do. But My, my pleasure. Thank really. you. Thank you so much for chatting. Of course. I'll chat soon. Good. Bye. Thanks. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or email us at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Just send us an email and say, I want to be in the Slack group. 
All right. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.